0: From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. Today's guest is Dr. Gerald Corey. Dr. Corey is Professor Emeritus of Human Services and Counseling at California State University Fullerton and an adjunct professor at the University of Holy Cross in New Orleans. Dr. Corey has authored or co-authored 16 textbooks on topics such as counseling theories, group counseling, clinical supervision, and professional ethics. He's also written candidly about the many lessons he's learned over his 60-year career. And he spoke with me about the struggles he experienced as a novice clinician.
1: When I first started individual counseling, I felt very inept. I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm helping. I had a lot of self-doubt and I didn't think I was very good. And I didn't see change with my clients. And I thought, huh, maybe I shouldn't be in this profession. So I always tell students, be patient get good supervision, get your own personal therapy, go to a lot of workshops, get training, and you will get better.
0: Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour, you'll hear Dr. Corey discuss strategies for developing a strong theoretical foundation and describe the benefits of utilizing an integrative approach to working with clients. He also shares his thoughts on taking risks and overcoming setbacks, and reflects on the value and necessity of practicing self-care.
1: I think I've learned that self-care isn't selfish. It's really an ethical mandate. And if I'm not taking care of myself, it'll show up in my performance. I won't have the stamina, the energy, the drive, to stick with a task that's demanding.
0: Jerry began our conversation by discussing what inspired him to write his recent book, Personal Reflections on Counseling.
1: Uh, Actually, I was doing a workshop at Lipscomb University in Nashville, and uh, they said, would you come and talk to some other classes? And it'll be a question and answer format. And they had questions on different things, uh, like why did you write? What would you say to new professionals of how to succeed in your career? How to prevent burnout? There are about 20 questions that I had. And then I got to thinking, hey, that would be an interesting book, questions and answers that I most frequently been asked when I give workshops or teach classes uh, that students over the years have said. So I thought this would be an interesting book, a very personal book, reflecting on counseling. And uh, that's how that came into being. And my wife and colleague, Mariana Schneider-Corey, we've written five books together, uh, Help me stay focused and honest. She said, now, write about your own experience. Don't just give advice, talk about how you learn certain things. So when I talk about self-doubts, she said, talk about your own self-doubts. And when I talk about self-disclosure, she said, what are your guidelines? And how has that worked for you? So it was a book that really is co-authored in a way. I mean, she read every page of it and gave me critical feedback. And as I said, helped me stay focused. So that book has got about 20 chapters, all on a whole variety of topics, all with question and answer format.
0: You mentioned that that book was meant to be honest and personal and just reading through it myself, it was very candid. I think about you describing your upbringing or even your regrets as like an early father. Um, Was that challenging for you to be so vulnerable in this way?
1: I don't think so because when I've uh, shared with my classes or audiences at American Counseling Association, conferences or whatever, large audiences, Whenever I share something that's personal, if I'm trying to make a point, uh, I've never, I don't get negative feedback. And people have said, hey, I appreciate hearing that. So I've had a lot of struggles and particularly like balancing work and personal life over the years. So I was very willing to share that. And I wanted a book that would share my experiences, not that you have to do it my way. But that I wanted to teach lessons via my own journey, you know. So I got buried in work when I first started. And I wanted to say, okay, if I could do it again, here's what I might do. So I didn't find it particularly vulnerable.
0: It may not have felt vulnerable, but at least from my perspective, it was certainly very revealing. And in your book, you talk about kind of the impact that your upbringing and your parents had on you. Um, one thing that really touched me was you talking about your mother and how work and in a sense, manual labor working in a peach orchard uh, impacted her ability to have consistent education, which resonated with me. I think of my uh, late grandfather who grew up on a dairy farm and was only really able to go to school until the sixth grade because, you know, work came first. And yeah. yet, just as you characterize your mother uh, hard work, industriousness, intelligence were very much there, but we can kind of look at our experiences and see that we had a few more privileges and opportunities. But that example of hard work for you seemed to really carry through your career.
1: Right, right. Not that I picked peaches so much, although I did when I was a small child and went there on weekends, but I think uh, hard work fit with following my interests. I've all, you know, I'm very interested in teaching, for example, and, uh, you know, preparing for classes is fun, too, and enjoyable. So the hard work doesn't seem like hard work.
0: You also acknowledge in the book that the hard work became an obstacle to other things that were important in your life, such as being a family man. And you've right. already kind of acknowledged some of the regrets that you have. Could you just talk about kind of throughout your career, how you've come to some of those realizations of needing to find balance or um, just working hard in more strategic ways that might help you to feel like you're living a more uh, integrated and well-rounded life.
1: There was a time, particularly when I was in my forties and fifties, I've had a 60 year long career. I started teaching high school in 1961. So that's 60 years by calculation. And when I was, uh, writing textbooks, I still am, and doing workshops, and teaching four courses, and the head of a program, I was doing it all. And I thought, well, as long as I'm enjoying it, so be it. (laughs) But then I kind of realized that doing workshops in different states, and even internationally, that it took a toll It took energy. And even if I enjoyed it, I realized I need to kind of realize I have limitations. And maybe I can't do all of the things I love doing always. So I had to learn to say no. Uh, Mariana and I did a lot of workshops in different places. And we loved it, like going to Korea and Ireland and whatnot. But uh, that all took energy and time. And I kind of said, okay, maybe I have to kind of look at what's on my plate and see, can I handle it all? So general later on, I realized, well, uh, I'll say no to some things, even if they're attractive, even if I would like to. So if I'm asked to do a keynote in another country, that's – a lot of work because you have to have an international flight and get their days ahead. So, uh, I think I learned even though work is fun and meaningful,
0: uh, we can't do it all. Always. I'd like to kind of talk about your clinical work as well. Um, you know, I would imagine for most people listening to this right now, uh, they know you or their first introduction to you was that you were the author of their theories textbook. And so, Uh, I'm just curious about what your early clinical work was like and what that process of growing and developing was for you.
1: Well, going way back, (laughs) I haven't done much individual counseling. Some, I had a position at a college where I was in the counseling center uh, for a while, but I was always in teaching too, university teaching. Uh, But then I got into group work. And I found that was an area of passion for me. And that grew out of my own, going to my own groups as a member. In the 1960s, I went to a lot of different groups, residential groups, marathon groups, workshops. uh, And uh, it helped me personally. And then I started thinking, how can I use group work as a way to train people. And uh, then we started doing group work, a lot of groups, and was my primary, I suppose, love and interest. And I just found that there are so many uh, ways that people could benefit from a group experience that are rich. If they have interpersonal issues, they can work on that in group. So uh, that's my early, uh, and I started that right after I got my doctorate at age 30. I was doing a lot of group work. And I always teach all my classes using a lot of group ideas. So if I teach theories, I break people in small groups to talk about, well, we just talked about Adlerian therapy. How does that resonate with your own life? What key ideas there fit for you? Or if I'm teaching theories and we do CBT, I break them into small groups and say, talk about some beliefs that you have that may get in your way that you have to challenge. So I use group a lot in teaching classes too, and do live demonstrations because people say, hey, I can profit from that. So that's my early uh, clinical work, I think, that's lasted until today.
0: It really surprises me to hear you say that you haven't done a lot of individual counseling because you know my first recollection of you is watching you counseling Stan individually yeah. uh, and demonstrating each of the theories and it seeming so masterful as if that each week's theory or each chapter's theory was like the theory you used on a daily basis.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, frequently I say, well, the last client I saw was Stan. (laughs) (laughs) And that was 2006 when we did that video. By the way, that was not rehearsed. You didn't ask that question, but I could comment briefly on it. Uh, You mentioned I wrote the theory and practice of counseling and psychotherapy book. And the case that I had was Stan in the book. And then I got to thinking, you know, it's one thing to read about it. I'd like to see it demonstrated in real life. So I had a former student, undergraduate student, uh, who went on for a master's and then he got a doctorate. And now he's PhD. And I think he was a doctor at that time. I said, hey, Jamie, would you like to do a video? And we did not script it. Uh, We did that whole 13 sessions in one day, 20 minute clips, 18 minute clips. And uh, while we didn't rehearse it, we said, let's try to pinpoint one technique we might wanna demonstrate. For example, with Adlerian, we said, "Uh, let's work on early recollections. But I didn't say now, Jamie, tell me in advance your early recollections. We just might work on that theme. And uh, he was a very good client. He was role-playing. But once in a while, he would slip into himself, too, like particularly with that one. So I think I use a lot of the skills that I've learned in group in working individually, too. You said I looked masterful when I did the, the thing with Stan. But I do want to acknowledge that when I first started individual counseling, I felt very inept and I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm helping. I had a lot of self doubt and I didn't think I was very good and I didn't see change with my clients, the ones I was seeing. And I thought, huh, maybe I shouldn't be in this profession. So I always tell students, be patient get good supervision, get your own personal therapy, go to a lot of workshops, uh, get training, and you will get better, you know. But uh, I always want to say to students that uh, it certainly wasn't easy for me to begin. I just felt too uh, tongue-tied. I kind of wondered, now what am I going to say next? Uh, And I really wasn't too present with the first clients I had because I was too much caught up in, am I doing things right? And uh, group helped me fabulously with that. And my colleagues, I must say that my colleagues that I've worked with over the years and still work with have been the most influential in helping me. They've been my mentors, you know, in many sense.
0: Were there resources early on that you used to kind of build up some of that confidence and you know get out of your head so you felt like you could make good progress with those clients?
1: I think where I got lost was I tried to copy the style of my supervisors, and I got lost. So my advice to students always is learn from people that you watch videos of or. Uh, people you go to workshops with and say, "Why well, I like that, and I'm going to take that in and try to learn from that, but do it in your own way. I keep saying you're unique, and don't try to copy anybody's style. There's one Carl Rogers. Don't try to be a Rogerian. Uh, there's one Albert Ellis. <laughs> don't try to mimic Al Ellis uh, or anybody else. Uh, be open, learn from them, but uh, I think I got lost, or I lost my own identity as a counselor by trying to think, now, how would my supervisor respond? What would he say in this situation? And that's not too helpful.
0: You've also written a lot about just the process of choosing a theory that fits for you in your uniqueness and in your personality and worldview, uh, as well as the process of developing an integrative approach. Could you speak to just kind of some of what you've written about and how that's helped uh, you as a clinician, as well as your students?
1: Sure. Um, My preferred stance or position to counseling is integrative approach. And Why I'm really drawn to that is different clients need different things. And I think we have to customize what we do to a client uh, to suit his or her needs, not force a client to fit our one pet theory. And I've written about a dozen theories or so in my theories book, and everyone that is still in there, I value. Uh, and I can see unique concepts and techniques that uh, are really very valuable. And I don't think any one theory has the, it's the be all end all. Uh, as much as I'm drawn to existential therapy, gestalt therapy, uh, we can also, I can profit, from CBT and reality therapy, uh, and think of how the postmodern approaches like solution-focused brief therapy can be intertwined with that. So my primary uh, therapeutic approach is integrative counseling. And that's not sloppy eclecticism where one picks a bit here and a bit there without systematically thinking it. And I like what John Norcross has said. John Norcross has a whole book called Handbook of Psychotherapy Integration, 2019. John Norcross. And he says you can't integrate that which you don't know. So you can't integrate CBT with Gestalt if you don't know a whole lot about those approaches. So I think it behooves us to be patient with ourselves and realize it's going to take some time for me to develop an integrative approach. Now, I just finished last semester teaching a class at University of Holy Cross in theories of counseling, and that'll be coming up again in two weeks. And one of their papers is writing about their integrative approach. To counseling. Now, I tell them, be patient. It's going to take many years for you to develop an integrative perspective. It's all you can do, maybe, to latch on to one theory that speaks to you the most, like maybe reality therapy or solution-focused brief therapy. So learn that well and try to stay within the confines of that. When you first begin. Uh, if it really speaks to you. But then I think what's important is to be open, to say, how can I draw techniques from other therapy approaches? Like I mentioned that I'm very uh, drawn to, as my foundational theory, existential therapy. It doesn't have many techniques to it. So, if I'm working with a client that's struggling with meaning in life, I might uh, borrow a technique from another approach that says, well, think of a time in your life, like solution-focused brief therapy, when life had a lot of meaning and you had a purpose. What were you doing? And, or you wake up tomorrow and you had a dream and... Now you found meaning and purpose in your life. What would that be like? So I like borrowing ideas from other approaches, but I always tell students, be patient. Don't, Don't make unrealistic demands on yourself that I should have all this together. It's really a lifelong journey. And the other thing is even if you become Have an expertise in a particular theory, there are all kinds of ways to carry it out. There's no one way to do Gestalt therapy. Irv Polster, who's a pioneer in Gestalt therapy, and his wife, Miriam Polster, who died a number of years ago, they were very different stylistically and personality wise, but they were pioneers in Gestalt therapy. And Fritz Perls, the founder of it, the pollsters were very different from them, So uh, uh, from Perls. So don't think there's one way, one right way to uh, carry out a particular therapeutic approach. I'm thinking of Judith Beck, who's a leading person in cognitive behavior therapy, and uh She's different than her father, Aaron Beck. They have different therapeutic styles. Doesn't mean one's right, one's wrong. It means uh, they can have a common philosophy and yet be stylistically different. I'm thinking of Carl Rogers and his daughter, Natalie Rogers. Uh, She shared Carl Rogers' philosophy of people, but she said, Carl doesn't have it all. He uh, listens a lot. He empathizes, but he doesn't do much by way of technique. And I think it's really helpful to get people into expressive arts. So she structures things and has people do drawings and be in small groups and express themselves through expressive arts. So she added a different dimension. So the different giants in the field carry out therapy differently. I'm thinking of Albert Ellis. There's nobody else like him. He was kind of charismatic, abrasive, off the wall. and uh, But he was a pioneer in cognitive REBT. He's the father of that. And Ellis would say, and I'm the grandfather of cognitive behavior therapy. And everybody else has copied me. <laughs> okay but now Debbie Joffe Ellis, who married him, they were married for a number of years. She is now carrying the torch for REBT because he died a few years back. And she has a similar philosophy of counseling, REBT. She serves very much of the same philosophy, yet stylistically, she's a lot more gentle, a lot less confrontive, but she's still REVT. So I think the thing I'm saying is there's, even with people that are well known in the field, they all have different ways of implementing their theory. So that ought to be a lesson to all of us that there's no one right way to practice therapy.
0: How have you helped students to kind of come to that recognition that there isn't necessarily a right way to practice therapy and to, over time, really solidify their understanding of the techniques and philosophies that underpin a theory, but at the same time develop to express that uniquely through their own way of being?
1: Well, I think modeling is very important, and for me, when I teach a class, I don't use PowerPoint lectures, I give them PowerPoints, and I expect them to use the PowerPoints as they read a chapter. But I do a lot more experiential things. And I'll say, who's going to role play? I'll demonstrate my version of CBT, who has a belief that gets in your way at times, and uh, somebody will come forth. And then I'll say, now, this is only my way of doing it. With you, but there are a lot of ways of doing it. So I'm willing to teach by modeling. And I think uh, something I try to teach is there should only be one of us. There shouldn't be a big difference between how I am as a person away from the class and how I am as a person when I'm teaching the course, or when I'm doing a video, or when I'm not in front of the camera so and I think if there's a big discrepancy there's something wrong because I think the person and the professional ought to be pretty close together so that's what I try to teach and I try to model that and I think that sinks in I think students appreciate that and say hey maybe I can be myself and that's my main hope for them that uh, over the long haul, you can be yourself, and it's okay to make mistakes if you have good supervision and talk about it.
0: How have you nurtured that kind of communication and openness with your students where it's okay to admit shortcomings or to say, like, this is a struggle of mine?
1: Yeah, you know, just before I did this interview, I guess spoke via Zoom to a field work class, and uh they're all kind of new. And I said, something like this, you know, don't worry about being perfect, because perfectionism can be a curse. And perfectionism can get in your way of being intuitive, connected with a client and being present. Now, that's different than doing your best. I very much think it's important that we try to be the best we can be, but we're not going to do everything perfectly. At times, I'm not going to hear a client adequately, or at times I may try something that doesn't quite fit with the client. And at times I may say, are you willing to try this role play? And the client may say no. And some beginning students will say, oh, my gosh, the client refused. I don't know what to do now. And I'll say, okay, I'm willing to go along with that, but will you tell me why you're reluctant to try role-playing? Yeah, because I don't want to look like a fool. Then we can talk about that, you see. So uh, I find a lot of students are very reluctant to own up to mistakes. And I think I won't get much better as a counselor if I don't identify my shortcomings, and then work on remediating them. So I think it's unrealistic to think that every performance will be perfect. When I say perfect, I mean, it's flawless. Uh, It can always get better. And I think that's very unrealistic. You know, I have many books that are in the 10th edition. And I say, it's great because the first edition doesn't have to be perfect. The 10th edition will be a lot more. Uh, My first edition of the book was 100 pages. The last edition was 400 pages. So things develop in writing. And uh, I think even in writing, a good editor helps us do a better job of communicating our thoughts in print. So I think a lot of students might be reluctant to go to a supervisor and say, you know, I really struggled with my client because I think my interventions didn't go anywhere. Or when I tried, you know, it seemed uh, I didn't think it was effective. Or the client said, I thought you had an agenda for me and I didn't get a chance to talk about what I wanted to talk about. That's great if you can own up to that and talk about that in supervision. So I encourage students identify your less than perfect performances and it's not fatal. You can
0: get a lot better. Yeah. In your personal reflections book, one of the phrases that I highlighted was failure does not have to be fatal. Yes. And that you know, struck me very deeply. And I, I guess I would invite you to maybe think back to your earlier career, even maybe more recently where you had a misstep or something wasn't quite perfect. And, you know you could have thought about it negatively but it was instructive and it energized you to move forward
1: when i did my first series of workshops in korea when i was invited to go to korea i think it was in 1984 and then invited again the next year and marianna and i both went to korea and taught a series of workshops before i went the first time i was so uptight thinking about oh will i make a cultural mistake I'm gonna have translators, how will that work? So I called some of my multicultural uh, people who were leaders that I knew like Paul Peterson, for example, who was a pioneer in the movement, uh, also Alan Ivey. Uh, those are just two that come to mind. And I said, I'm concerned. What if I go to Korea and I make a mistake? And Paul Peterson said something like, well, you probably will, but don't get too hung up on it. What's more important is how you bounce back from a mistake. And he said, I think you'll do just fine if you try to be yourself. So I got a book and I read it about the cultural, like bowing and all of that. And I I was so, I think, caught up in what am I gonna do so I don't make a cultural mistake that it got in my way. And there are a few times, more than once, that I did things that may have been cultural mistakes or had an agenda, but we could bounce back and it didn't seem fatal at all. And we could talk about it. Like, for example, I love interactions with an audience when we're presenting. And when we were doing workshops in Hong Kong, I still remember asking the group, we just did a demonstration. What do you think? What did you think of our demonstration? Dead silence, nobody talking. And I said, well, let me try it another way. What did you learn from the demonstration you just saw? What did you think of what Mariana and I just did? Dead silence, nobody talked. Then I thought, well, I'll put them together in small groups and ask them to talk about what they saw and elect a spokesperson for their group and then come back to the big group. Let me tell you, they did beautifully. They went in small groups and they were very involved. They came back and each spokesperson stood up and say, here are the points that our group saw in your demonstration but they're more of a collectivistic culture. And when we asked them personally, what did you think of our demonstration? They weren't gonna talk to quote the experts and challenges, you see, even though that's what we wanted, you see. And they thought, well, we don't wanna give feedback because that might be too confronted, but they had questions. And so we learned by adapting our way of working,
0: to different cultures you've been involved in the profession for as you acknowledge you know several decades now i'm just curious from your perspective how you've observed the profession evolve and perhaps improve and what your assessment of the state of the profession is presently
1: thinking way back to my graduate school when i was in uh, a doctoral program and got my doctorate in 1967 So that's a fair number of years back. But then there was very little attention given in my doctoral program to counseling theory. I had two theories, Williamson and Rogers. That was it. Okay. And I had no group counseling class, group guidance. There was no course in ethics per se. Uh, We got a little of that in practicum. There was no class in multicultural counseling and diversity wasn't talked about much. Now, all of those are topics that my students in an undergraduate program are benefiting from. They have multicultural counseling classes. And I think the world is looking different than when I first started. Uh, It's a lot more diverse, at least counseling clients are. And I think we need to be a lot more versatile and competent in working with cultural, racial differences and not see culture as our foe, but our friend. Again, Paul Peterson, a leader in the field of multicultural counseling said, Actually, if you incorporate counseling into your counseling uh, approach, it's going to make counseling easier. Uh, So uh, I think one change I've seen is there's a lot more attention to uh, differences without stereotyping, without, you know, having uh, preconceived notions about, people based on their gender, sexual orientation, religion, race, life experiences. I don't wanna categorize people, but I don't wanna think everybody's like me and think the whole world shares my worldview. And I think a good counselor is able to be open to, there are a lot of different world views. And my job is to be open to diverse worldviews and perspectives. I think that's critical. So I I see that as a change. Uh, Another one is when we go to a conference like ACA or ACES or APA, both Mariana and I are, and my colleagues, often very, Struck by the quality of graduate students. We're really very taken by the people that are in masters and doctoral programs that attend a conference and that present. They're really passionate. They're interested in making a difference. They're uh, willing to work hard. They are open to experiences. They come to a conference to meet other colleagues and people in other universities and go to programs. And they're already making differences. So we often say, when we talk about it, we'll say, you know, the counseling profession is in good hands. We have a lot of faith in the graduate students that come to the conferences. And when I teach at different universities or Zoom uh, with different classes, I too am impressed with the caliber and quality of new professionals. So uh, that's a change. I think that, you know, uh, I, I, I see we're in good hands. And a major change, I suppose, over the last year, Is we're limited in doing in person. You know, everything now is via internet and doing supervision is online. Private practice, seeing individual clients online, Zoom. Uh, My teaching has been via Zoom. And uh, I, a year ago, before I started doing classes via Zoom, I said, I don't know if it's gonna work because I'm more of an in-person person. I'm willing to give it a try. And uh, I tried and it works, not as well as for my perspective as in person. But I think uh, doing in per- uh, via Zoom, uh, we had some very powerful classes. When I taught theories, I brought in some big names, experts for Adlerian therapy and reality therapy and multicultural issues and uh, family therapy perspectives. And it went very well. Uh, And we interacted and the students had a chance to do this. So I did some creative and innovative things. And uh, this was at Holy Cross, University of Holy Cross. The person who hired me, Dr. Ted Remley said, I'll give you a graduate, a doctoral student and he can do all the technological stuff. And he had a way to do breakout groups. And the students said they love that. They got a 15 minute increments because our sessions were three and a half hours a whole weekend for four weekends. And uh, we learned, hey, these breakout groups are very effective. So I think I learned that technology is here to stay, like it or not. And I hope it won't replace uh, in-person counseling and supervision and teaching. But I think more and more, even when hopefully the pandemic ends sooner than later, uh, people are gonna say, well, there's a place for hybrid courses or we can't do everything in person. So technology was something I was uncomfortable with and I wondered if it would work. And I think that is a wave of the future
0: too. Along those lines, what are your other hopes for the future of the profession or for the future of counselor education?
1: Well, one that comes to mind is, I hope those who go into counseling will think outside of doing individual work in an office. I mean, that's fine if that's your passion, one-on-one counseling. But I'm hoping you think about how I can make a difference in the system, in the community. So I hope, and I see this happening, that you ask the question, what can I do as a professional to make a difference in the community. What can I do to teach advocacy? What can I do to help uh, bring about racial justice? What can I do to help deal with issues of people working with the pandemic, the trauma, uh, where there are a lot of challenges. And I think we have to think outside the box. And I think we need to think a lot about how we need to go more into the community and have a different vision of what the counselor's role is. It's not just doing individual counseling. I think it's thinking more broadly, uh, more creatively. Uh, So I think we all are called upon to do some work and with racial issues that are happening and political issues. When clients come in and say, I saw on the news uh, this kind of demonstration, this kind of riot, and it's really triggered me personally. They need to be able to work with that. So I think what's happening in the world is material that clients are bringing in. They need to be listened to and heard. I just saw today something on ACA, I think it's called Counseling Minutes. They show what's new, and there was something about diminished experiences in nature is impacting anxiety and depression with people. That as we have less contact with nature, it's increasing people's anxiety and depression, and the whole there was research done on this, that the more people could get connected to some aspect of nature, even a small piece going out and see birds or trees or some connection with nature, it helped combat depression and anxiety. And so I think self-care is hugely critical. And I think we as professionals, need to think, how can I myself get out and experience nature, something every day? The Dalai Lama has said in his talks, everybody needs to be in nature 30 minutes a day. Uh, And it's sometimes hard to find. But most of us, I think, can find a park or a small place somewhere that's away from high-rise buildings and noise and buses, that we can see a little pond or something that's nature. And I think our clients need to get connected to nature too. So I see that as something that we as counselors need to do with our clients. Self-care, so critical.
0: Could you speak in particular about how self-care has helped with, say, the vitality and longevity of your career?
1: You know, I hesitate saying what I do because I don't want to make it sound like it should be your way of doing it. My way is my way. And I think every, every everyone who's listening to this, listen, you all need to find your own way to take care of yourself. But what I would want to say is if you're not taking care of yourself, it's going to show up on your ability to be an excellent helper. And for me, uh, I've valued self-care by way of uh, physical activity. And my thing is getting into cycling. I do a lot of that on flat ground. And uh, I do a lot of hiking. Uh, I got into Pilates. Uh, which is sometimes very difficult and very challenging. I have a private Pilates teacher, and I know that costs money, and everybody can't do that, but you can do it online, and it's even free. I got into a Pilates class. Uh, So I think we're built to move. We need to do something physical, stretching, uh, jogging, playing tennis, Tai Chi, you know, walking in nature, uh, whatever it is that you can commit yourself to. And I know at my advanced age, in my 80s, uh, it's not going to work if I'm not taking care of myself physically. I would not have the energy to write, revise, do all this Zoom calling (laughs) and teaching if I didn't take care of myself. But I think I found that it's more than physical exercise. It's having connection with people. that's important. Connection with my colleagues. Uh, connection with family. And I know that's difficult right now, because we can't see our grandchildren as much as we would like to, till we get our second shot and vaccine. So, you know, I think we're limited now, but we have Zoom and FaceTime. And I think, Having fun is important Uh, and some of my colleagues play the guitar, they sing, some of them are even in a band, Uh, you know, they do things that are nurturing and uh, you know, I like going to concerts and listening to good music and we've done a lot of that. I think I learned that when we did a workshop somewhere, it was important for us to always crank in, build in a little bit of time before we did our workshop to go there and experience that state. Take two or three days to walk around and uh, see things, you know, rather than getting off a plane, being in a three-hour time zone shift, and immediately being on. So, taking some time to regroup and get psychologically prepared has been very important. I think meaning in life is critical. And for me, uh, I'm not retired. I still work about 30 hours a week, but it's not nine to five. Uh, Sometimes I don't start working at one o'clock because I'm into bike riding for two, three hours or whatever, hiking. But I think meaning in life is so important. And a very important part of my own meaning is being able to make a difference with students or through our writings or through our videos. We've made uh, about six videos. And uh, that's been a very important component to our writing because some people will say yeah the book was helpful but it really helped to see it in action through the video and uh, so uh that's a part of the meaning in my life to stay active to go to conferences to work with colleagues to co-teach i love doing that Uh, i do i've done a lot of zoom presentations for no pay for my dear friends and colleagues. Uh, I did 75 of them last year in 2020. And uh, I got paid for some at the university I was teaching at, but uh, 55 of them were done all for colleagues. And I found that very meaningful. It was a, a way to teach and make a difference and share ideas and hopefully inspire the attendees to kind of think about the legacy they would like to share and work with. So for me, a big part of meaning is uh, work, and that changes over time, and uh, those are just a few things. But I think I've learned that self-care isn't selfish. It's really an ethical mandate and if I'm not taking care of myself it'll show up in my performance. I won't have the stamina, the energy, the drive to stick with a task that's demanding.
0: Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you would like to share?
1: Always there's more. And that's why I write books because I when I do a course I used to think well I didn't say it all. But I suppose the main thing I want to say is stay open. Go to conferences. Uh, ACA is having a virtual conference the whole month of April. Open yourself to opportunities to get new experiences. And maybe most important, find your passion and follow it. Do what excites you. Don't do something just to get tenure. Uh, Yeah, maybe you have to do certain things to get tenure, but follow your interests. That's been my key thing all my life, to follow what I'm really interested in and passionate about. So I would want to say to all my listeners, find out what you're excited about, what you think your unique talents are, and then have the, I suppose, courage to follow that. Make your dreams a reality. Dare to dream, but think of how I can translate my dreams into concrete action plans. How can I make that dream happen in reality? So good luck and hope to meet you at a conference.
0: And as we wrap up, I I would just want to ask you the question that I end every interview with, and that's to think back on a time in your life where either clinically or personally, you thought about something or were behaving in a certain way that was counterproductive and you had to step back and reframe that situation or that mindset, and you found it to be incredibly beneficial
1: as I said, going to another culture to do a workshop. And I used to think, well, I have to know everything before I go. And I think sometimes being open to a new experience is very beneficial. So I think I've learned, don't think you have to know the whole lesson plan beforehand. Let a few surprises happen.
0: The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on The Reframe.